Hello and welcome to Who Knew, a Doctor Who podcast. I am your host, Josh Carr, and I've got a very, very special guest with me today. Um, it's someone I'm a massive fan of. It's Robert Shearman. How are Hello. you? Hello. I'm, I'm, I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for that. That's very kind. No worries. Yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm good. It's, it's actually just great to see a face because, I mean, I've mm-hmm. been staring at my wife now about a year and it's odd how after a while I mean I must now know every contour on her face so I'm now yeah. staring at you Josh and I'm just got I've got a whole new contours to explore well it's really good yes there's a lot of it to explore there's a lot yeah. of hair and yeah and yeah yeah I mean, I mean, that's also the with me that everyone that I have spoken to you know recently I mean you do the odd zoom chat because of because of the target book to be honest mm. and everybody goes into apologizing for their hair and the fact <laughs> that we all look kind of neanderthal I, I i did this forbidden planet one um forbidden planet of releasing specially signed book plate versions of the target so they got us all to do an interview mm. and every single person went into that wanting to apologize for the fact that we all looked as if we you know we were we were you know we, we were part of the tribe yes. of yeah. and yeah. And now they're, they're sort of releasing these things. And, and all I'm doing is looking at them saying, God, how bad is our hair? I mean, I think I've, I think I've got the worst hair. It just looks awful. I, I mean, it's really so. bad. I mean, I like actually, it. because since that, my, my wife's cut it. She was so appalled that I did an interview with my hair like that, that she um, attacked me with a pair of scissors. Um, and you know, and, and in the resulting conflict, some of my hair did get cut off, and I, I don't look quite so bad now. But oh god! Mm. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah, I was about three months overdue when we went into our third lockdown. So I'm, yeah, I'm in, a, I'm in dire straits at the moment. Yeah, where I'm just pinning my hair back with headphones at every yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Um, but. So, I mean, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, Obviously, as everybody knows who's listening to this, we're here to talk about Doctor Who, um, which is uh, a fabulous little programme. If you haven't heard of it, I don't know why you're listening to this. It's actually doing quite well, isn't it, Doctor Who? It's It's doing all right. It's surprising, really, Mm. because it's one of those ideas that, you know, you don't expect necessarily it will survive for 60 years. Yeah. but no, I mean, that, that, that's why I love it. I mean, that's what I remember most about when we, I mean, I was so, I felt so privileged that I was on that first series when we brought it back mm. because I can pretend I wasn't any way responsible for that when in fact I was just, you know, ha, you know ha, um, hanging onto the coattails really of what, of what Russell and BBC were doing. But people would say to us, I remember when we were approaching America about wanting to sell it and Russell was saying, they just think it's a really terrible idea. And they'd say, well, that's mm. not going to work. And you have to point out, well, it ran for 26 years. You yeah. know, I, I remember that there was um, um, a wonderful critic called Bonnie Greer was on the BBC um, on, one, on, on that um, arts chat they used to do on the news. And she'd seen the first few episodes of the new series and she just said, this isn't going to fly. She said, and she said that very openly. She said... Yeah, I saw this the other day, actually. For yeah, some reason, it popped up the other day and I was watching well, it. I mean, and the thing is, is that she's not entirely wrong. She said, I mean, I think her... I mean, you've seen it more recently than me, but I remember her criticism being that 
we didn't know what we were doing episode by episode. It just felt like it was mm. totally all over the place. And of course, yeah. as Doctor Who fans, we know that's entirely the point of Doctor yeah, That's the point, yeah. When I fell in love with it, which was around the time of uh, the early 80s, mm. and I became a massive fan during Davison, it was partly because every single... You could go from Cash Travalva to Fort of Doomsday to Kinder. The fact you could get Earthshock, and then you could get Snake Dance. Mm. And, and yeah, I mean, and, and they look like totally different television programmes. And that was actually what appealed to me. Um, and the fact that particularly nowadays, I think that most television, you, you, you work upon the idea sometimes that, um, that there needs to be a sort of tonal style. I mean, if you write an episode of Casualty, you need to, viewers turning on need to know immediately oh yes this feels like casualty and doctor who i was always very worried that if it came back back in the wilderness years it would come back and be this is this sort of tonally similar program at all times and yet you know here we still yeah. are with uh, watching jody's stuff and again that's still all over the shop just as it was during uh peter capaldi's and matt smith's and mm -hmm. i mean that's what i find so exciting about the show so yeah it's yeah it's, it's a, I mean, and, and again, you know, so I'm, I'm not letting you talk, but that's because no, I'm no, go ahead. You to be not <laughs> my wife. I mean, what, I mean, that's what's actually so funny about these targets, which have just come out this week, is that, you know, mm. you've got my Dalek one, you've got Mark Gatiss doing this sort of kind of fun camp 19th century um, letter writing comedy. And then mm. you've got, you're bang up to date with Joy doing her, really interesting historical feminist stuff. You've got me doing a, I mean, Dark is nothing like either of those, really. And it's just, yeah. weird that, again, you know, we're, we're just celebrating the differences between them as opposed mm -hmm. to sort of streamlining them and saying Doctor Who is one unbroken, um, easily identifiably same thing, which is great. Yeah. It's so exciting. Yeah, and I think that's why you've, you've always got a, well, when you become a fan of Doctor Who, I feel like it's it, it's it's almost like fate where you, you have to catch it at the right time because yeah. so me me going to like friends that that don't watch Doctor Who um, that that I know if they gave it a shot would would yeah. love it but it's about finding it's, the right way in yeah it's that it is a nightmare to describe because <laughs> you you say you, you give them the bare bones of you know he's a time traveling alien. Yeah. He travels with with in, in a box that's big on the inside. Yeah. Bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. Everyone sort of knows that already, but it's it's about trying to pitch like uh, you do sort of have to, when you go in with a person who who doesn't watch the show, I always I'm thinking what episode would yeah. would be a good jumping on point for them. Really difficult thing to do because yeah. I, I, that's what I find so funny about it. You know, you, you look back through I mean, I get regularly asked, I expect you will, um, you know, what would you do if you were on the Chris Chibnall series or if you've been on Stephen's series or whatever? And mm. the fact of the matter is that the show is so constantly evolving that things that I could do well and would have been allowed to do at a certain point in the show's history become irrelevant at another point of the show's history in the way that, you know, you will look at a show like City of Death. I love City of Death. But there's no way that anybody would have commissioned that same wonderful script during John Pertwee's run. 
Yeah. It doesn't make City of Death worse. It just means that that would have been totally the wrong thing. And so that's what I love about Doctor Who is that is that you're what you're, you're reading in the books, but you're watching like, these episodes which work in the moment. And therefore, I mean, the, there is, I mean, I, the thing about other shows is that you can, you know, if, if you want to be a, a fan of, I'm trying to think of a good example, I, I was a massive fan of The Simpsons for years, and there were certain episodes that I knew I could pick out and say to somebody who'd never seen it, try this episode, this is one of the best episodes. There is no best episode of Doctor Who because, because, there is nothing which actually defines it. What I love about Doctor Who is that um, every single story has its champions and every single story at the same time is hated by somebody. And there is no, well, this one at least is the one that universally we all adore. It just isn't true. And that's what I love about the show is that you can meet fans and I love conventions and things. And you meet fans who have never seen anything say before Matt Smith. And that's, perfectly valid or fans have just said anything except Jodie but they're still Doctor Who fans yeah, yeah, yeah. that they that they've never watched a telly snap reconstruction of Fury from the Deep does not mean that they're not fans and there are fans I know who gave up on the show who said this it stopped being for them at a certain point in the show's history but they're also just as valid as fans and it's this mm -hmm. incredibly broad church which I think is so wonderful about it you know I mean I'm in a really happy position where I broadly love all of it partly because i have no sense of uh, discrimination i'm the same i'm exactly the same yeah. i've said this on the podcast before where, where when i was thinking of ideas for the pod i, I thought because you, you get podcasts that do like reviews of of episodes which are great i listen to so many of them and i was like i don't think i can because i don't think i can review anything to do with doctor who objectively because i yeah. love it all like i I get just as much enjoyment out of, you know, watching a classic like City of Death yeah. as I do, you know, watching The Twin Dilemma or Absolutely. Time Lash or something. Yeah. Like, and, uh, yeah, in a funny way, even though, the, the they're ones. unrecognisable from each other. Yeah. That's what's so funny about it. So, so you know, with your um, uh, friend that you, you know, um, your, your, your hypothetical friend who you're trying to find a way of showing the show, you know, you want to say <laughs> this is a good entry point. But what, what is? I mean, really is no yeah. good entry. I mean, I, I remember back when the BBC, back again before the show came back, probably about 2000-ish, thinking, well, 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 we'll do a complete run of all the John Pertwee stories and that'll get people back in. And they showed Spearhead from Space and then they, did, they, they, they showed the Silurians. And then they got cold feet because the viewing figures weren't very good and also because it's from 1970. And they suddenly realised that this didn't sum up any part of Doctor Who that it doesn't sum up Tom Baker. So they jumped to Tom Baker suddenly, but that didn't sum up anything that, that uh, was happening in the 80s. There is sort of no landmark. And I, I think that's amazing about a show. You know, if you're watching Line of Duty, um, then you can say, well, season three is pretty, it's probably the best season of Line of Duty, someone will say. But, mm -hmm. but everybody will forever be I mean, no one's ever going to agree about Doctor Who, and the more of it they make, and they keep making more and more of it, I mean, it's, it it's inexhaustible. Yeah. It means that, that more and more you get that sense of diluting, which is great, that, that idea that we've already had the best episodes. M most of the things which I find funny about old shows, 
um, is that people always say, well, when did it jump the shark? That's what I, you know, it's, it's what you keep on hearing. And there's always the assumption that the best stuff has been done. With Doctor Who, you genuinely don't know that the show happening that they're filming at the moment won't be for, for many viewers, the very best Doctor Who episode ever made. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to look back and say, well, obviously it can't be as good as the case of Androzani or, uh, or anything else or, or, or the demons, because for them, those episodes will be meaningless. I, I just find that really exciting. I don't know why I'm wasting so much time talking about that, but it's true, I, I do. No, 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 I, I completely agree with you. I, I'm right there with you. Um, so I, going back to the beginning, you, you mentioned that, so you, you became a fan early 80s then so yeah. Davison was was the one that that got yeah. you in was it a case that you'd was that just like your first exposure to Doctor Who or was it that you no, it, hadn't really gotten into it with the I've been really scared of the idea of it um I mean that sounds really stupid but there, there was a children's comedy show called Rod Hull and Emu and they did a sketch, at least one, it probably was a, run, a series of sketches about the deadly dustbins, which was basically yeah. just about Rod Halanemu running away from dustbins that wanted to eat them, which were the Daleks, of course. Yeah. And I found that terrifying, so terrifying, that there was no way I was going to watch the, the, you know, the actual real thing. And every time I caught a bit of Doctor Who with the time tunnel sequence with Tom Baker's face in it, I used to... I found it really frightening. Just that music frightened me. And it was odd. I became, around about 1981, I got into Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And a friend at school said that Douglas Adams, who I'd immediately realised was my favourite writer, he'd only written at that stage two Hitchhiker books, but I read them both over and over again. He said, oh, he wrote Doctor Who. And that suddenly made Doctor Who interesting. And I went and bought Target novelizations in the stupid belief that actually all of them were written by Douglas Adams under a pseudonym. <laughs> so I was reading these books and thinking, oh, I can tell Douglas's style is here. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I was reading I love this new pen name of Terence Dix that he's picked up. That's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought, <laughs> oh, he's used. And I just assumed they were all by him. And... And I just, and I hadn't yet seen it, but it kind of made me fall in love with it. And a friend at school called Owen Bywater, who is referenced in Dalek, there's a character mm-hmm. called Bywater that I kill off, um, <laughs> did a talk in a history club about the history of Doctor Who. And he got out this sort of roll of paper on which were written all 115 stories at that point. Um, and I was amazed because what, I found exciting at that age, and I still do, is lists. I just love lists of things. And I just suddenly thought, oh, how exciting and how interesting. And I I wanted the list. I didn't necessarily want to ever watch the episodes. I thought they'd be too scary. And so I borrowed from him the making of Doctor Who, the Terence Dix Malcolm Hulk uh, book about it, which has a sort of little paragraph uh, synopsis of all the stories. And by the time it came back on screen, I must have read about 20 novelizations and kind of memorized from the Doctor Who program guide and making of Doctor Who all the story titles. So when I watched Castro of Alva, which is my first proper story I ever watched, when they were having those sequences in the TARDIS where Davison was talking about 
the Brigadier and the Ice Warriors. I was able to say to my sister, the Ice Warriors, who were in the Ice Warriors and Seeds of Death and Curse of Paladin. And I'd never seen any Doctor Who before, but I still had this sort of anal uh, desire to quote facts about it, having never watched it, which is stupid. I mean, really weird. And so I, I, I just decided to become a massive fan almost overnight. And so I was, I, I was buying Doctor Who magazine without having ever watched an episode for about a couple of months before season 19 aired, which is weird, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit weird. Yeah, it's a, it's a really strange way of getting into it. Yeah. Um, you're, you're definitely, the, I think, the first person who has gone in with, with Target novels first. Yeah. And, you know, or, or learning all the background first and then watching an episode. Um, it's usually the other way around. We've had I, some interesting so stories about... I remember when Fort of Doomsday started, which was uh, opens with a big spaceship, and I thought, oh, I'm not sure I like spaceships. <laughs> no, but I enjoyed Castrovalva, and I remember I, I enjoyed those Target books, so come on, stick with it. I remember that I, I, I was I spent that first year of Davison waiting to be terrified, and I was only therefore frightened by Doctor Who as a viewer properly once. Mm. And, and, I, and I was 11 years old. I should have been, frankly, a little bit braver. But it was when um, Sanders in Kinder opens the box of Jana and his face lights up red. And I thought that was terrifying. But by the time, you know, but within months, I had a zine writer moaning about how I didn't like episodes of Graham Williams, even though I'd never seen them. <laughs> because I was just copying what everybody else was saying. I mean, it, that was the awful thing in a funny way about growing up in a Doctor Who world back in the 80s. You know, you would, you would feed off everyone else's opinions. You were reading in other fanzines. Mm. And, it, and you just knew certain facts. You knew that yeah. this story was rubbish, but this story was great. But you'd never watched them. You might have read the target. So, yeah, but that's, that's quite similar to... Uh, so, so like pe people of my age, so my first stories were like Chris's stories series right. one yeah, yeah, yeah so that's when I came back in but that's quite a similar experience to me and I imagine quite a lot of people listening at home and a few of the other people that are around my age because we got this series called Doctor Who and I had no idea what Doctor Who was I didn't know that it existed beforehand Right. Um, I just heard, you know, the odd reference here and there to TARDIS and Dalek and, and whatever. Um, but then, obviously, because it was sort of the the dawn of the the age of the internet as well, you then get the chance to go back, yeah, and read up on everything. So I would be like nine, ten years old, yeah, with only like two new series of Doctor Who behind my belt, but I'm spouting off facts about the web planet and you know <laughs> trying to, trying to make out that i know i know what these things are when i actually only really explored like classic who like last year really i mean the idea that i mean i remember going to a convention in i don't know i think it was 83 and somebody giving me an audio cassette sped up of the celestial toy maker all four episodes and that was amazing that i was able to hear this pretty dreadful recording of a pretty dreadful story um and yet you know the idea now that if you become a, you know if you just turn on tv and you catch 
Jodie Whittaker and you say, oh, I love this show. And then you say, oh, I'll watch all of it. And you can. I mean, the idea that a young fan getting into it now can genuinely um, just watch everything that's ever been, including telly snap reconstructions of all the stuff that has been lost. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 I sort of moved away from Doctor Who for quite a few years. It was getting, it was the realization when I got on the internet in 1998 or so that people had been going out there and making reconstructions of things I thought I'd never seen, which which got me back into Doctor Who again. The idea that hmm. a, a young fan can have access to easy access to 60 years worth of material is also though I imagine quite intimidating I mean part of the part of the fun for me when I was at that age was that you'd get a new target book every month and I'd dutifully go out and buy it and then I'd have that you know have that extra thing on thing on my bookshelf and we'd get a series every year and if you were lucky and I got luckier you know you go to conventions and people might give you VHS recordings of things that they've got from Australia. But it took years, genuinely years, to actually amass a, an actual collection of Doctor Who. You know, I, I, I remember it was at university when I finally was, I finally saw for the first time, because a friend had a recording of it, The Leisure Hive. So I was about 20. So it was about 10 years of waiting to catch the final Doctor Who episodes I'd never seen. Whereas now, just go and get them. I mean, and of course, that's the joy is that there are these Blu-rays coming out, which are amazing, and I'm buying them every single time. And I, so I'm, I'm not going to make the mistake I made with the first set of thinking I'll get that later because they go out of print very, very fast. Um, yeah. And the idea that, you know, I will have on my shelf and a young fan can have this library of all of it, it's just astonishing. I mean, I, I, I still find it astonishing just the amount of, dedication and love that Doctor Who encourages to the point that you get all those incredible extras on DVDs now. The fact that you can get somebody saying, I'm going to devote months and months of my time to doing an animated version of The Faceless Ones. I mean, incredible that that's the only programme in the world that anybody would ever do that for. Exactly. And that's what makes Doctor Who is, is made special because of the I think of the adoration and the, the and, and, and the inspiration that it, it gives so many people who are prepared to sort of, you know, the only, only thing I can actually compare it to is the way that people would commit themselves in early days of, of um, communism to the Soviet state. It's almost yeah, like, yeah. you know, I, mean, I think when you work on the show, you know, there is a sense in which you're thinking, this is me giving, giving something to a, to the mother, um, to to the sort of um, yeah, sort of like to to, the, to that sort of mother load of of something that, that we care so deeply about. Mm-hmm. This is my paying something back to the show. Yeah, well, getting into that. So yeah. obviously, you you become a fan, and obviously, you you amass this collection. Then the show goes away, yeah. and then obviously, big finish comes along. So yeah. is that was that your first experiences of writing for Doctor Who was Big Finish? Was yeah. That, yeah, yeah. I, 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 yes, that's right. I mean, it was odd because I, I had many friends who were doing the Virgin New Adventures, 
and I got to meet them. But I had no interest at all at that stage of being a novelist. I mean, I was a professional writer by that point, but I was writing for theatre and I wrote dramas. And so I just never believed for a moment I would ever write a book. It just wasn't what I did. So there was no temptation to sort of submit things to Virgin. And Big Finish came along in 98, 99-ish. And um, a friend I'd been at university with called Nick Pegg um, told Gary Russell that there was a professional writer who was a fan. They never heard of me because I wasn't, I didn't do anything in Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was invited to pitch a, an audio for Tom Baker. Yeah. And I pitched what was sort of vaguely a sort of page about what became the Holy Terror. Um, it was a very silly idea. And they eventually wrote back and said, I mean, Tom had passed at that stage on all of them. I think on stage he'd said that he'd let them slip, all, slip in, into the bin which was, you know, fair enough. Um, I don't imagine he'd at that stage read them. He wasn't wanting to come back at that point. But they go back to me and they said, well, would you do it for Colin Baker and, uh, and a penguin? And I said, sure. <laughs> so I wrote The Holy Terror. At the same yeah. time, I also, because I was getting into Doctor Who, I wrote for BBV um, something called Punchline. Um, I did it under a pseudonym, so I wouldn't steal Big Finish's Thunder because they obviously wanted to have mine come out first, but it didn't. So Punchline came out under a different name. And then I began doing a bunch of big finishes for a few years, which was great. Really, really good fun. Yeah, well, as someone who's, because I'm I'm very new to big finish. Right, I, a lot um, of it. Yeah, there is. Because yeah. that, when you were saying about how Doctor Who seems quite intimidating, I've always felt that. I've, I've always felt that with Classic Who. And then last year during lockdown, I... Watched all of Classic Who from the beginning. Wow. On Britbox. Um, basically everything that wasn't a telesnap, a telesnap reconstruction I, yeah. I watched. Um, that's, a, that, that's a wonderful thing to do as well. Yeah, and I, I only fun. finished... Yeah, I started last March and I, I finished last month. Congratulations. Um, yeah, yeah, it was... It's a great it was, pilgrimage to do. I, I, I think everybody so can, should do it at least once in their life where they yeah, watch everything in order. And obviously, I, I was talking about it on the podcast um, quite a lot, and everyone was like, "Well, then it's it's big finish. Then you've got to do yeah. big finish. You've got to, you've got to go all the way through." And I was like, "Everyone!" I started tweeting out like, "Where do I start? I have no idea where to start." Um, but there's one name that always comes up every single time I tweet about big finish, or I see a tweet about big finish. Yeah, it's usually because someone's talking about Chimes of Midnight. Oh yeah, which yeah. I I really want to talk to you about because okay. I listened to it for the first time today. So oh, fantastic! I I've finished it a couple of hours ago. Yeah, um, and I binged the whole thing today. Oh, terrific! And I absolutely adored it. It's it, thank you. It, yeah, it was honestly amazing. Um, so yeah, that's. That was my second one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I mean, that was it's because I, I don't I don't actually hear them back because mm-hmm. um, I did half a dozen. But once you've worked on them, you don't. It's awkward. I, so I, I didn't ever watch Dalek back. I don't like to confront the fact that they might be awful. So I heard it at the time. But last year during lockdown, uh, lockdown one, um, um, there was an idea of doing lots of um 
watch along things on Twitter. And I did one for Dalek. And then I was asked whether I would do one for Big Finish on Chimes of Midnight. So I, I listened to it for the first time in nearly 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually, I, I, I actually, I, I know what happens in it now. I, I <laughs> and I, th- I think it's pretty good, actually. I mean, I, I know I shouldn't say that, but it almost feels a bit like it's a different person who wrote it because it's so long ago. And I yeah. thought, that's quite funny. And it was quite spooky. And it, and it, 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 it made some sense, sort mm-hmm. of, by the end. Well, I, yeah, I mean, in, in the best way possible, I, I was listening to it just like... I just need to hear the end because I need to know what what is going on here. Yeah, there's so there's so much to take in, but I yeah I I absolutely loved it and thank it's, you. It's it really it nice widely it's widely regarded, and I think I tweeted about it today, and I got so many so many replies about it. I think it's it's fair to say that it's widely regarded as one of, if not the the best that you know that that big finish has offered within within the fans anyway um but it, it interested me because like you said then it's i mean firstly it's really funny it's it's surprisingly funny for the the what the story is about yeah but then it's it's really dark and really creepy yeah and when when you talk about how scared you used to get at, at doctor who and like the the fear that you used to feel, you do seem to have a very dark way of writing for Doctor Who. Yes, is it is it inspired by the fact that you were always so scared of it? I, I, it... I suppose. I mean, I always feel Doctor Who should be something that children dare themselves to watch. That mm. when I was at school, again, you know it. The, it shouldn't be something that was seen as, you know, um, pathetic and easy. It ought to be that you've actually... I mean, that's what I loved about, um, I think, what, what Russell began doing was that... I mean, I, I remember watching early uh, episodes like Satan Pit and thinking, they can't show this, can they? I mean, because it was so far in advance of what we were allowed to get away with the year before. And then when you were watching episodes like silence in the library which i think is a really good scary episode and i just thought you know this is this is tough meat i mean i could not have i mean that would have been one of those things as as an eight-year-old when i began seeing bits of doctor and i remember watching the bits of the sun makers creature from the pit and they're not very scary but i was terrified of them and the idea that these are genuinely quite creepy but also i don't know very um atmospheric things would um, be offered up before children and at the, and, and I think thrill them, but at the same time also be memorable for the rest of their lives in the way that scary things we see when we're young always do is, mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's actually Doctor Who's job. It doesn't mm-hmm. always have to be, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I mean, I love comedy Doctor Who. I mean, I, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that what I'm good at or was good at when I did Doctor Who was I like, I like having a few scares. I mean, that's what I write most of the time anyway. I mean, I, I, I tend to write now mostly quite weird, creepy short story fiction, which is, I think, quite funny, but does seem to unnerve people. Mm-hmm. And I wanted my Doctor Who's to. I mean, I, I always thought when I wrote Chimes that the whole thing was just a comedy. 
I didn't think there was actually anything particularly scary about it. And I'm always surprised when every year at Christmas, um, people go on Twitter and they're having their Chimes um, annual uh, experience, which is always such fun to notice. Because, you know, I mean, I mean, how amazing is that? Something you wrote 20 years ago. A, a group of fans will always listen to it at Christmas. But they always react as if it's this really scary story. And I think, is it though? I mean, as far as I was concerned, it was a series of gags about people being run over in kitchens and things or, or sink plungers and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think my sense of humour is that way anyway. I mean, Jubilee, which is my, my really dark comedy for Big Finish, which goes a bit mm-hmm. too far, I think. Probably, but for me, that was just about seeing whether I could shock people into laughter, which is what yeah, I like. Yeah. Well, well, Jubilee was the next one that I was going to come to. Um, yeah. Because it's, I've I started that today. Um, I I haven't finished it yet. Right. But I. Because quite I've, nasty. I've, Jubilee. Yeah, I've I've always um I've always heard about it because yeah I, I always because I I'm. If, if you hear me talking, I'm, I'm usually talking about Dalek, if I'm honest with you, because it's it's one of my all-time favourites. Well, thank so you. So everyone's, yeah. um, everyone's said, uh, you know, go and listen to Jubilee. Um, Which it's nothing it's, like. It's really Yeah, it's really like. not. It's, no. it's a lot less like it than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, obviously, you, you can see, like, some certain set pieces that have been adapted yeah. over, like, particularly what the where I got up to today was just after when the, the doctor sees the Dalek for the first time right. and you have that walking into the darkness. Um, and it was really interesting to hear that with, with Colin doing it. It's it, like my brain couldn't really work it out because I've seen yeah. Dalek so many times. I was like, it's really strange because you, I always have these conversations that are like, imagine this doctor in this story like if you swap the doctor out yeah and it's like the first time i've actually been able to listen to a, it's, a, almost it's a, in a different story it, it's a much smaller scene in jubilee as well it's, it isn't the important thing because it's only a cliffhanger mm. and yeah I, I mean colin and i have spoken about it a few times because colin i think is quite proud of jubilee but he doesn't much like dalek in fact he really doesn't he will constantly tell me so if I meet up with him at a convention he'll come up to me and he'll say he'll say things like I just I just found it really reprehensible the way that you had the doctor treat the Dalek you should never have done that whereas and I think that yeah it's a completely different way of going into it I mean with, with, with Dalek what was funny was that Russell obviously based the um commission upon the fact he'd heard Jubilee and we went into the first meeting back in 2003 or whatever. And very quickly, I, I think we both realised in discussion that virtually nothing in Jubilee could possibly be of any use to us. So, I mean, he was, I mean, there were things that Russell, I remember in the first meeting, was quite keen on keeping. The bits that, you know, where if you tortured the Dalek and all the juice that runs off, you could bottle and manufacture. But there was no way that we were going to be allowed to do that. And tonally, it was so wrong for what Dalek was. Jubilee is an audio about the fact that everybody who would have heard it back in those days was a, frankly, 30-something-plus Doctor Who fan of a show that was dead, and everybody there would be appreciating the sort of satire of it being about 
the fact that we had had so much Dalek stuff over the years. And that's what the show is about. It's about the fact that because we mass manufactured Doctor Who, mm-hmm. when we brought it back, I mean, it was for an audience who, like you at that point, didn't know what Doctor Who was. So it was like a complete change of point. Um, Dalek had to be about showing off to the audience all the things on a much more simple level about why you should be impressed by a Dalek. You know, when everything about them, to be honest, when you look at it coldly, isn't, because they're very bulky and they look weird. They've got sink plungers and egg whisks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and everybody had been for years... um, frankly, taking the piss out of them. In, well, that, in, this in, is something that I, I wanted to cover. Um, yeah. And that's why it really interested me before when, when we were talking about how you got into Doctor Who and when you mentioned um, Rod Hull and Emu yeah. and that being one of your first experiences of Doctor Who, I, in my mind, I immediately thought it, that, that explains a lot. <laughs> Because, because right. um, I, I, I always when every time I watch Dalek, it is, it, it's a great episode in in an, of its own right, but also it's there to act as a deconstruction, sort of of yeah all the audience's misconceptions about Daleks, and That's you have exactly those right, moments, yeah. and it it's. It's so cool looking back on it now, and you know you you get those moments where it's like, oh, it's stuck in a narrow corridor. Yeah, how's it going to get out of this one? It's stuck at the bottom of a flight of stairs. How's it going to get out of this one? Yeah, and um, yeah, it's 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 interesting that you say that one of your first experiences is a Dalek being mocked on on TV. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's such a and also just on on that point as well as well, that's how much the work that that episode has to do, because the finale of that series as well hinges yeah. on which of the course Dalek I was always screen. aware of. Yeah, you know, it so has that, I mean, to be as threatening as possible. It was that it was that funny thing that I mean I saw that as entirely my job really that um, I had to bring them back so that not only could. The, the epic season finale be epic, but also that when you began to see them en masse in that story, you'd find them more threatening because we'd given such attention and depth to one single die. I, I knew that from this point on, although I was wrong, because there have been other stories since which have been very good at uh, deconstructing a single Dalek. Um, mm. But I was assuming from this point on, we'd never really do this again. So it would be Hopefully, if anybody who's watching, they would look at every all those Daleks in parting of the ways and say, my God, it's that single Dalek that gave us such trouble times by 10,000, as opposed yeah, to it yeah. being, yeah, so I mean, it was, I mean, what was frustrating was the fact that we'd, it wasn't hard in some ways because I wasn't trying to fix something that was broken. Any Doctor Who fan will know that we knew Dykes could go upstairs. We'd seen it happen in Sylvester McCoy's time. We'd actually seen it happen kind of hinted at in Colin Baker's because you had Davros flying around. So, and, and we also kind of knew anyway that obviously that would have happened. It wasn't that I had to find clever ways of fixing things that were broken. It was just making sure that when we did it, 
we were never making fun of it or if we were going to have somebody actually comment like with the sink puncher and i was really proud of the sink puncher moment because um I'm, i remember in vaguely in a meeting you know talking about design whether we should get rid of it and i said no we can't get rid of it just let me find a way in which i'll make sure that we never mock it ever again and if i i went a bit far with that because i remember in my first draft of doing that that came at the guy's face and then it grew over his entire head like a sort of a sort of um uh, uh living black sludge rubber and it picked him up and it threw him around the room and eventually it throws him against the wall and you just see that his entire face is burnt off to the skull and i remember having an to russell and russell just came back with these notes saying what do you think you're doing <laughs> And yet later on, a year later, when they did Army of Ghosts, that's what they did. Yeah, and I was really thrilled. I thought that's how much further we've been able to go a year later. But at that point, it was just a matter of saying, let's not muck. You know, I, what, what actually happened? I mean, it, it's an old story I tell, but it is actually un unlike most anecdotes you get into in Doctor Who sometimes. It is actually entirely true. I, I came back from, from having had the phone call on a bus telling me I was doing Doctor Who to tell my wife, who's not a Doctor Who fan, but is also the best and oldest friend of Katie Manning. So she's had Doctor Who in her life for quite a long time. And she just said, oh, that's a shame. But I told her I was doing Daleks. And I said, why should that? Oh, well, they're just rubbish, aren't they? And so I, I, I sat down with her and I made her come up with a list for me of all the things that she just thought were rubbish about them, which included lack of conversation, they can't turn around in corridors, the stair thing, that stupid sink plunger, what are those balls meant for? And I tried to put everything, I, I think with the ball thing I went wrong, I, I made them sentient minds in one draft, so they would detach and they would fly off and they would lurk for people who were, um, you know, they would lurk for people behind corridors and things. Yeah. But actually, it's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need that. I mean, I, I was just trying all these different things out. But in most instances, all I was doing was trying to demonstrate. I mean, we all know if we've watched the, the black and white Dalek stories, those wonderful things, particularly by David Whittaker, the Patrick Troughton, that Daleks can do really interesting conversation. The fact that they had become, by a certain point, lackeys for Davros and they don't have any conversation yeah. doesn't change the fact that at one point, in, in the 60s, there'd been these extremely cunning uh, Machiavellian um, manipulators. And so I, putting that back in, I was just paying homage to what had gone before. I mean, I don't think I was reinventing the wheel particularly, but it was great fun to do a Dalek story where I was just wanting to say to people at the end of your 45 minutes, take them seriously, which yeah. I think works, actually. I mean, I mean, that's what I love about the episode. I mean, I, I have misgivings about it because you do about anything you write. Um, going back to having to study it so much for the novelization. But I do think that what's nice is that I don't think Daleks are, are as routinely mocked as they once were. Definitely. And I, and I think that, and that seems to be held out, actually, which is nice. All these years later, people mm -hmm. don't mock them so easily for, for the whole stare thing. Even yeah. though Ben Aronovich had, had already done it. But, you know, yeah. I just came yeah. on and did it again. So well, One thing that I... 
it's, it's just come into my head because I seem to remember reading that during the development of the first series, yeah, there were issues in getting the Daleks. Yeah. So I was going to ask, yeah, what was because obviously, I, you know, I think it's, I think there was, I've, I've read that there were like different ideas being flown around for a new creature that was going to be yeah. in the script instead. Yeah. Was, was there like an added, because once you got the Daleks, was there an added pressure to you personally, or did you not feel the pressure of like, well, now we've got them? we sort of got to nail it first time. I, I, kind of, in fun, funny way, actually, it helped in a sort of reverse way. It was strange. I'd spent, I don't know, about five drafts of Dark, and I thought I was nearly at the end, which I wasn't looking back at all, but I thought I was. Um, and I was having a drink with Stephen Moffat, who at that point was just about to start doing Empty Child. And looking back, it's hilarious, because I was sitting in the pub with him, and I was... I was probably rather arrogantly from the fact that I'd done mine. He hadn't started. I was saying, well, the thing you'll learn about doing Doctor Who, Stephen, is this. I mean, I, I was, I mean, <laughs> which is looking back very embarrassing. Um, and I got a phone call from Julie Gardner, um, the exec, and I went outside to take it so I could hear it better. And when I came back in, Stephen said he thought I'd been mugged. Because I was, I just looked pale, and I was having to grip onto tables, <laughs> and I just sat down with them and said, "I've lost the Daleks," and he said, "What do you mean?" He said, I, "I've just, I've just lost the Daleks." And um, what it, I mean, we, it was only a few weeks, uh, and what it forced me to do was to make the story work because it's effectively a very, very similar story I wrote. Um, but it had to work now without trading off the fact that we had something famous in it. It still had to work. So mm -hmm. I went over to see Russell because I was trying to find alternatives and it wasn't really working at all. Um, and I went over to Russell's house in Manchester and it's frustrating actually, because if you, if you ring Russell's house, you know, the, uh, the doorbell and he opens the door, he's got standing in his, you know, in the, uh, you know, just behind the front door. It's a full-size Dalek, which really kind of mocked me, the fact that he had one and I didn't now. And we went and sat down and he suggested that a monster he had been thinking about for series three, he'd already planned that far ahead without me realising it, we could bring forward. And so he drew me on a piece of paper, this circle, <laughs> which was which was the Tocophane ball from... Mm -hmm. um, sound of drums and uh he told me what it was he said this is going to be he said the time war was meant to be the daleks and the time wars but now it won't be the daleks i said okay he said it's going to be the future of humanity and the time wars never knew what this creature was and so what goes through my other script is the doctor having this passionate desire to find out what this mystery alien who had killed his entire species was. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, Russell wanted it at that stage, you know, we'd open it up at the, in the season finale and find out this sort of severed head. But in my episode, it was never going to reveal itself. 
And what I did was he wanted at one point to be mute and we realized that wasn't gonna work. So I gave it the same character as my, effectively my evil child from the Holy Terror, which is why I think in a funny way, when they do come into season three, they have that sort of sing song childlike thing. I think that's a hang up effectively from my script. But what it did was it suddenly made me toughen up stuff around it so that when we got the Daleks back, I didn't want to go backwards. I didn't want to go back to the previous drafts. I wanted now to move on forward with adapting what I'd got better from what I call absence of the Daleks. And so in a funny way, it's almost like a good writing lesson. If you feel that your script or your story has become reliant upon a crutch, to have for one or two drafts that entire crutch removed, to say things like, okay, you've got Earthshock. Would Earthshock work without the cyber? And what about the fact that this is an old monster? Let's, let's, let's remove them and, and still make it really good without trading upon the nostalgia. Yeah, so when we yeah. got the Dalek back, which was such a relief, um, and I'm terribly grateful actually to, well, I mean, Stephen's uh, mother-in-law, Beryl Virtue, um, was the first person I think to negotiate the rights for the Daleks back in the 60s. So we had a sort of in and we, were, we got people around the table yeah. and I was so relieved. And I could go away and write my Dalek story again, but I now thought I've got to make it so that I can't just be reliant upon this so much. Mm. So yeah, so it, it definitely helped rather than yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, it was it was odd. I mean, I, I'm not saying that we wouldn't have got there anyway. I mean, I, I think that I I think I'd spent the first few drafts being very nervous, a bit too nervous really, because it was new Doctor Who. I was a very inexperienced television writer. I mean, compared to the other people on the Doctor Who team, I, I was a baby, not in terms of age, just in the fact I'd been in the theatre all these years and I hadn't done much TV at all. And I was trying very hard not to be sacked. I just wanted to, I, I wanted to write an episode that I didn't think that 15 years on people would hate because that's the awful thing. When you do most stuff, when you write for anything else, you know, your own books or you write for another television show you don't think about what people will think 15 years later but with Doctor Who you do because you're a fan and you know and you know that people are going to um, look back doctors and doctors later and what I didn't want firstly was I didn't want our series to be the thing that killed it so that fans in their you know of my age now in their 50s will look back and say that series, a bit rather like Paul McGann's TV movie, was hated for a long time because that was the end. That had been the failed experiment. I didn't want us to be a failed experiment where all of us were secretly hated by every single Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. But then as, as it became, became obvious that actually this was going to be rather good, I just didn't want Dalek to be the story that was bottom of the season poll. I wanted it to be something which people would look back on and say, yeah, that's a decent one. And I think that's actually one of the things that galvanizes almost everybody on Doctor Who is that virtually everybody who's written for the show has always loved it. And you know what that means. You don't want to have written the one that everybody looks back and says, yep, that's this season's time lash. You don't want to have written the time lash. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that it was a Dalek episode was worrying. I mean, I got at times really jealous of 
Mark and Paul and Stephen, who were doing their episodes without any of that extra sense of weight. But at the same time, now I look back and I'm so grateful. I mean, it's incredible, mm-hmm. actually. I mean, the fact that Russell gave me that episode to write, you know, and he gave me such freedom. I just went away and wrote it. I didn't even have to do a scene by scene breakdown. He just said, no, no, it's your episode. You go and write it. And to, as I say to this extremely inexperienced writer, when you know years down the line, that would be written by the showrunner. So that's an important episode. That's a foundation episode. It's remarkable. And it means that if I go to a party now, not that you can in lockdown, but back in the days we could, you know, and, and people always, if people find out you're a writer, they'd always say to you, so what have you ever written? And no one knows the other stuff I've written. I mean, I'm proud of it, but no one cares. But if you say, and I did Doctor Who, they say, oh, you did Doctor Who. And then they say, on oh, which one did you write? And they actually do know what my one was because it was the Dalek one. Whereas mm-hmm. if I'd written, and this is no disrespect to the episodes in question, if I'd written Father's Day or Unquiet Dead, it would be another Doctor Who episode because it wasn't that Dalek episode. So um, I was incredibly fortunate. I mean, it, it's lovely to have written an episode through no particular manoeuvring of my own, which is one that just is memorable. It's one of the reasons why I'm sure Target came to me. It wasn't because my script was so extraordinarily good that they had to have a novel of it. It's because it's the first Dalek episode, isn't it? So that's memorable. So that's why but I got it's, it's nice. I mean, it's, it's it, it is. Oh, obviously, I, I know that you, you're being very modest there, but it is a, it's I'm, a fantastic I'm being script. honest about it. I'm, I'm, be, um, I'm, no, yeah. I'm, I'm very proud of it. But I'm also aware that there are, I mean, there are other Dalek scripts as well. It's just that this is the first one. I mean, I got to write. Mm. It's incredible. I got to write the first Dalek episode of the 21st century. Yeah. And it's, 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 a wonderful it's actually, script. it's probably one of the most talked about episodes on our podcast. Because... Well, we've we've mentioned it a few times um, because it is it does seem to be a bit of a, a it's a it's a bit of a turning point in the series as well, isn't it? Because I think the yeah. whole series, I think you can split it sort of in half, and yeah. it's you know the 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 setup, which are all great episodes. I, I love oh, all yeah, of absolutely. that series. Um, you know, up until the, the Slovene two-parter. And, but they're, they're a little bit more, a little bit more, not necessarily light-hearted because there's some dark stuff in there, but yeah, they're, but they're, they just they seem a bit more jovial. Yeah, they're mm. a bit more introductory. And then, like, because I, I remember it, and like I said, a lot of, a few of the guests that we've had on have been around my age. So for so many people, it's, like myself it's my first ever Dalek story it's the first time I'd ever seen the Daleks which are hands down now my favorite villain not just in Doctor Who but in TV history I I adore the Daleks and um yeah it's just a it's one of those moments where I, I everyone remembers where they were when when Chris walks into that room yeah and it's it's just it's actually, that is actually a very good scene. I mean, I, I must very, admit, very that when I hadn't seen Dalek for about 10 years, I think, when I prepared to novelize it, mm-hmm. and I watched it in one go. Obviously, it's not that long, it's not like I was watching eight hours. I, I watched it in one go, it's not a, an impressive beat, but I watched it and I was kind of expecting to cringe because 
I get him. It's like, you know, the moment I'm appearing on Blu-ray DVD extras and I can't watch them. So I don't like to, to see myself on screen. I don't like to watch my own stuff back particularly um, because I just think it's all I can see is the faults. But I did really enjoy Dalek and I really enjoyed that scene very much. I thought, I mean, Chris and Nick, I mean, it's they are so good in and of course, then you get the extra pressure of saying, well, how do I novelize that scene? Because that scene has to be a good scene you novelize. But it's, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that that's one of the high points of Chris's tenure was probably that first encounter with the Dalek. And I'm really proud that that has my name on. It's, uh, mm-hmm. I think it works because of Chris and because of Nick and because of Joe Ahern, who does a great job directing. I'm not, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's down to me, but I do think that's a, yeah, I mean, I, I got a sense of real thrilled pride watching that. Yeah, so you should, yeah. so you should. Yeah. Um, we're going to take um, a little bit of a, a very short break. Okay. And when we come back, um, obviously we, we, we're we going to talk a, a little bit more, a little bit later on about, about the Target novel. Um, but we've got a little something, um, our fa- one of our fan favourite segments, Okay. Um, which is the DVD collection. Oh yes. So yes. Okay. when we when we come back from the break, we will uh, we will slide on over to the DVD collection. That sounds good. Welcome back, everybody. It's been about two seconds for us, but you know, you, you've all had a nice little break. And now it's time to go immediately over to everybody's favourite shelf, the, the DVD shelf, which is chock full of belting episodes. And we're going to see what's going to be added this week to the DVD collection. The Unicorn and the Wasp or Love and Monsters. Which one do you think I prefer? No, I mean, which one do you want to watch first? You are pulling my leg. So. Shall I announce it? What episode would you like to submit to the DVD collection? Well, this is my favourite Doctor Who story. Um, And it's not everyone else's favourite. I mean, I've I've had arguments about this with friends who don't understand why I love this one so much. But my favourite Doctor Who story of all time is Snake Dance the season 20 sequel to Kinder, uh, starring Peter Davison. I just absolutely love that story. And some of it is nostalgic. I think it was the first story I watched that I just thought as a script and in what it did to my understanding of drama, felt like it was art. I, Mm -hmm. I, well, I think when I became a writer, um, it was in part the inspiration of certain subtle things that Snake Dance had done that I tried to get into my own scripts. So it, it was odd, a, a few years ago, whenever it was, when they did the uh, Kinder Snake Dance DVD box set release, um, I was interviewed about it and I said things like this. I was in a room uh, talking to camera, doing that really awkward thing actually where they ask you questions, but then you have to 
somehow put the uh, the question into your answer because they never so it always feels very artificial that it was weird so you have to be quite emotive but at the same time actually sound like it was always your idea to say that and I explained how much I love Snake Dance and how um, there's a sequence between Martin Clunes and Colette O'Neill in episode one where they're discussing her marriage, which is so subtly done that she, you know, they, they, they laugh about the fact that he hasn't got much sense of humour and then she just says, even then. And for me, as a 12-year-old at that point, the even then just suddenly summed up this high, the idea of this strange, sadly disappointing marriage and then you move on from it and I try to put even then moments into my scripts and I said all this and after I'd done the recording a man came up to me and said did you mean any of that and I said I meant all of it and he said and he was Christopher Bailey who had written the episode I didn't know who he was oh really (laughs) yeah and he was really touched because he'd he said to me that he had spent his time on Doctor Who assuming he'd failed that no one really liked it, that Kinder had come bottom of the Doctor Who magazine season poll. And I told him how much it meant to me and how it inspired me to become a writer. I told him how much other writers on the show now loved it. And they sat us down quickly and they filmed us. And it ended up as, as a sort of Easter egg on the box set um, because it wasn't very well filmed, so it wasn't a proper thing. But, but it was so moving to be able to, because it was all true, I mean, Snake Dance, of all Doctor Who stories, Snake Dance was the one that made me feel I'm looking at this as a future writer. I always wanted to be a writer. Snake Dance made me start analysing how stories worked. And I, if I go back to it, and I don't look at it very often, but if I do, it never disappoints. I think there is so much about its sophistication, about its themes, about the fact that, I mean, in a start, it, it's a story... I mean, it's hard to explain if you weren't there, but you're too young. But in 1983, it was the 20th anniversary that we were promised that every single story was going to be a celebration of Doctor Who. And it's a story about the pointlessness of celebrating big events and about about (laughs) false nostalgia. It's about that. I mean, it's so... And there are extraordinary bits where they blackmail um, an entire culture by taking them into a room and showing them all these sort of bits of cobwebbed plates. And then you start breaking them to get people to agree. And Eric mm-hmm. Saywood once told me that that scene is based upon the idea of what would have happened if you'd led Doctor Who fans into a room and said, right, you're going to give us your country or we'll wipe Tomb of the Cybermen. It's, it's, it's so much about that sort of strange idea of, of just being so complacent about stuff. And actually that's pretty much what, you know, fed into doing my big Finnish audio so that Jubilee, for example, which is all about dangers of complacency, mm-hmm. is entirely lifted rather, you know, for, done in a much more clever way from Snake Dance. So Snake Dance for me is 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 my favourite. I just adore it. I think it's a, mm-hmm. it's a remarkable Doctor Who story and it isn't given nearly enough attention. Oh, yeah. Kinder oh, is yeah. also yeah. Yeah. I mean, Kinder may in some ways be better. It's just that I love snake dance so much and I, I i can see arguments why kinder is a more um cerebral piece of work but snake dance for me just knocks it out of the park i just think it's truly remarkable 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love both of those stories so much. Um, I love, I love Kinder and, and Snake Dance. Um, they're definitely two standouts of, of yeah. the Davison era to me. Um, and it's it's mainly because of Tegan. I think yeah, they are the defining that moment. That is great in of, them as well. Yeah, she's incredible. She is. It's. I I think I tweeted out at the time when I was because I was tweeting along as well while I was watching all of these episodes for the first time. And I, I think I said that, um, yeah, J- Janet's performance in, in both of those is, you know, so, some of the best performances we, we get out of, um, out of companions in, in all of Doctor Who, yeah. new and yeah. old. So, um, it's also yeah, so it's rare great... at the time because, I mean, it's like a new series thing. I think that the new series goes out of its way quite rightly now to try and showcase the companions as having their own special episodes. It didn't really happen in the classic days. And Snake Dance in particular, I mean, Kinder, she spends an episode of sleep. I mean, it's actually not, what's odd about Kinder, you look back at it, and Tegan Possessed is maybe half an episode as it goes on to um, Aris quite quickly. But in Snake Dance, she is the villain. I mean, they give her all that space. And she's so good, Janet, in it. She really seizes it. And it's, it's a really, it, it, I think it's a very, very disquieting show altogether. I mean, I, I, again, I wasn't scared of it, but a year earlier I would have been. I, I, I found it so fascinating. The sequences where you just look in a hall of mirrors and then you see that your face has turned into a skull. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, I would love to have written that. In, yeah. any, you know, if I, in any of my horror fiction, I, I, that's such a great image. The idea of, oh, I don't know. I mean, all the, I think the cliffhanger to episode one, where you're with the fortune teller and she just summons out this snake skull, which causes the crystal ball to explode. I think it's one of the best cliffhangers that the show has ever done. I think it's extraordinarily clever and so so weird and dissonant and frightening it's it's such a good story and it ends so brilliantly as well it ends so abruptly and and it's and it's such a strange uplifting story no one dies in snake dance Mm -hmm. i think i think that's true which is odd for a story with doctor who at that time you know every doctor who story is littered with bodies but snake dance isn't about that it's about it's about being redemptive it's a really redeeming story yeah, it's a lovely story. Um, and I would, just on, on a personal note, I love the Mara. I think that I think yeah. the Mara is just a, sitting there waiting for, for New Who to yeah, you know what? turn I'm, it into another I'm, new iconic villain. I know. I know that, I, I, I'm kind of glad it hasn't happened, though. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that funny thing. I mean, I was asked on a podcast recently, I was caught by surprise and... It was a more general, it wasn't so much a Doctor Who fan thing. I was being asked about Doctor Who along the way, and they said, oh, and what monster mm-hmm. would you bring back? And I said, oh, the Mara, because it's my favourite. But actually, I really wouldn't want to. I, I, I think what's gorgeous about, um, particularly when you see that Doctor Who had a way with the um, uh, spin-off range with all the books coming out that, it was very hard to leave alone things which had worked. You know, you would suddenly mm-hmm. start, this is no disrespect to people who have done it. You know, you'd, you'd say, well, let's bring back Tobias Vaughan from the invasion. Let's bring back um, Wang Chiang 
let's give them a second outing. And you think, but actually the power was, it was just that one story. And I think yeah. what's great about Kingdom Snake Dance is that the Mara don't have to come back. I think mm-hmm. it works so well. And, it, and I, I don't know what it would, I think, I think let the Mara inspire something like that would be great. I, mean, I think do that, but mm-hmm. yeah. I think, yeah, I think a, a similar, a, a similar villain that gives you the opportunity to do a character piece for, for like a companion again, like yeah. that would be great. Oh, the invasion um, of dreams. I mean, something about the invasion of dreams would be a really good Doctor Who story. Now yeah. I think it'd be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, well, wouldn't have to be a wobbly. It's a great snake, pick. But, yeah, yeah, it's it's a great pick. Um, yeah, I, I love that one. Um, so it's on the shelf. It is in the DVD collection. Good. It's joining some some very good episodes. Um, so what we're going to do now is um, we're going to take a little dip over to uh, everybody's favourite hellhole. Um, that is the 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 glorious Twitter. Um, for our okay. fondly named section, Bloody Twitter, to get yeah. some questions. For God's sake! Bloody Twitter! So we've got a few questions here. Um, we had loads of questions, so I do apologise to That's anybody. Okay. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, I, I apologise in advance. If there's anyone who, who I didn't get around to your question, we had so many. A lot of people were very excited that you were coming on. Um, so first of all, we've got one from at Sounds Myth Prod. Uh, they have asked, uh, what was it like writing for the Eighth Doctor and Charlie and helping to create the Divergent universe at Big Finish? So I know we covered it slightly, but what was it like... Yeah, for that doctor in particular, that was fun. I mean, I mean, I think the joy was that it was starting fresh. Um, those first ten um, eighth doctor audios were all written before we'd heard the others. So that you've got a series, you've got Storm Warning through to Minuet in Hell, um, which is the first season uh, Paul recorded a big finish. But then they commissioned another six which takes you from Invaders and Mars up to Neverland. And we wrote those before Storm Warning had gone out. So in all those 10 episodes, we're kind of all of us trying to find our way of writing Paul again without having heard anything else. And it was such fun to sort of be given, as it was in some ways with, with Chris a few years later, the sort of freedom to create something new. And I just, I, I kind of wrote Paul in that first instance, in my idealised Doctor way. I, I, I try to write uh, the Doctor in a sort of, in the most idealised way I could. This is going to be my Doctor. And it was easier in a funny way, because I think the danger of writing for old Doctors is that you give them the sort of caricature stuff. You know, it's the way in which if you're writing about Tom Baker, you're going to put in lots of Tom Bakerisms without realising he didn't do them that often. So just creating Paul as a real doctor was just great. And, and Charlie too. And it was just, I mean, I was quite lucky at Big Finish because all the audios I did always involved non-television companions. It was a similar thing. I, I didn't really want to be writing um, something 
from 20 years ago. It was it was fun to do a new doctor and, mm -hmm. and, and with Charlie a new companion. With the Divergent stuff, which was my second big finish audio with Paul Skirtso, I didn't really know what that was. Um, what had happened was that they were going to go into a whole new universe where time didn't work. And I was asked to write the first story coming out of it. And I, me I remember saying to Gary that I didn't really understand it, but I would write something which felt like it was quite about timeless. Um, and I didn't really know what anyone else could do with the concept and they went in different directions, but it was, um, that was fun. It was like a sort of strange experimental piece. It's just a two hander. They walk around for an hour and a half and that's it. I mean, it's just dealing with the sort of claustrophobia of having all their senses taken away while there's something which is like a sound creature. And some people really hate Scherzo because it is it is incredibly minimalist. Um, in fact, for years, I assumed it was just generally disliked. It was only getting on the internet and seeing social media where I begin to realise that Scherzo has its own it has, it has its own strange following now of people who really like it, which is really nice. Um, yeah. But yeah, with, I think with the Divergent Universe, I, I think it was a really brave thing to do because at that stage, Doctor Who was never going to be on TV again, as far as we knew. And the idea of taking a new Doctor and saying, he's left our universe forever and we're going to go into a new one now and we can't do old monsters and we're going to find new ways in which science work mm. and in which you know, a whole new concept for Doctor Who. We, we'll, we'll do all that other stuff with the old Doctors, but with the new one, we've got this going instead. And then as soon as it began coming out, Russell brought the TV series back. And it was obvious that the ninth Doctor would be on Earth. So it was immediately about all those brave ideas of doing this separate universe were obviously not going to be stuck with. We'd have to bring him back at some point anyway. And that seemed a shame. Um, Although possibly it was more sensible. I don't know really how long you can mm -hmm. honestly sustain the idea of putting a doctor into a place where time doesn't work. And I, I, I think it, it's, it's such a sort of conceptual idea. It was, it was good mm -hmm. fun. I mean, I, I did enjoy writing skirts. So I did it on my honeymoon, which is an odd thing to do on your oh, honeymoon. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, that went down well. Well, it, we, we had a few days by the pool. So oh, cool. I could. So we, we, we were traveling around quite a bit. So I was able to sort of say, well, I'll go and just sit out by the pool and write the story about thwarted love, because <laughs> that's what <laughs> Skirtso is about. It's, yeah. it's a strange anti-romance, Skirtso. Yeah. Anyway, um, sorry, I'm chatting. No, no, quickly. it's okay. No, no, not at all. It's, 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 it's so interesting. And like I said, this is what, it's what everyone wants to hear. Um, so our next question is from Dom. Uh, at Shed Life Skills with a Z. Right. Um, she's asked, uh, what are the best and worst pieces of advice you've ever received? I don't know. That's, That's a pretty one, hard man. question. Well, the thing about the worst advice is that, um, I suppose it's the advice that anyone who's not a writer gives you. It, it's, it, it's the thing that when you want to become a writer, you know deep down it's a ridiculous job to go into because there's so many writers out there anyway and why should anyone care what you ever write and and how do you get to be good at this so it's anybody who emphasizes that logic who says to you well don't do that that's a ridiculous thing to go into and of course that is the worst advice 
the best advice, it's, it's odd. I mean, I know you pick up advice along the way. The advice I tend to give now myself is a realization I had some years ago that the thing about writing is that we go into it and we're so nervous of doing badly. But the thing about it is that however bad anything I've ever written has been, no one's ever died because of it. I mean, it's just bad writing. It's okay. I mean, if I were a bad airline pilot, I might crash the plane and that would be awful. If I were a bad doctor, people would die on the operating table. But a bad writer, it's all right. It's just something you can move on from. And once yeah. you realize that, that you can free yourself from that responsibility and realize that the only way to write anything is to write and push yourself so that you do write bad things. As soon as you start realizing that everything you write is good, you're taking it, you're, you're actually behaving, you know, you, you aren't trying hard enough. You, you need to be constantly going into areas where you fail in order to be a writer. And mm -hmm. failure is part of the job. In fact, most things have to be bad for the things that you write to be good. And everything I've ever written is massively compromised. And I know that. Um, and that's what you learn from. And, you know, it's, I mean, there are bits of, I mean, the most recent thing I've done is the Dalek novelization. And, and I flicked through it and I can see bits that I think are good and bits I think, yeah, I took a gamble there. I don't think that that paid off. That's, that's the point of the job. So the advice is basically to not think in these strange linear terms, I think, about things being good and bad, because most people I know who write are scared of the outcome. They're scared people will judge them. They're scared that they just simply will reveal that they're not talented enough. None of that matters. It's about not having to worry about not everything working. And that's, and you, and you just carry on. And everything mm. that you write is another jump off a cliff. And you never get to a stage where you stop feeling that everything you're writing might end up not working, but that's okay. That's the job. That's my advice. So the uh, next question is from Harry McHugh, um, at Harry McHugh 01. Um, what, what was your favourite of your new additions to the tar to the target novelisation of Dalek? Oh, um, it's probably the scene with the torturer, actually. Mm. That, that was kind of my way into it. A few years ago, people were asking me whether I would... Um, ever do a target and I always thought I wouldn't and then it began to nag at me that there was one thing that would be quite fun to tell which was it's the idea of that moment when the torturer gets his head crushed by a Dalek sucker and I thought wouldn't it be funny because that's my sense of humor that um mm. he has a constant headache and it's only in the moment of his death when his skull snaps that his headache stops and I began to think yeah that that's kind of my way into the book it, the yeah. idea the hard thing about doing the book is that you know you've only got 45 minutes uh, of tv work and um it's also quite claustrophobic and quite fast paced you don't want to slow it down too much in in terms of the action yeah. but if you could take all those people who were in that base and from their own fates give them these sort of ironic stories then that's probably a good way to do it so the only thing i really went into the dark novelization with at the beginning was this idea that at some point i would write a chapter which was simply telling the story of this 
little boy who only realize, who realizes he can only stop having headaches if he's torturing small animals. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> he's, he's one of my favorite additions as well. I thank you. We a, a few people. Uh, I've actually been talking to a few people about that particular scene on Twitter, um, right. that particular moment because it it's just I like like I said with with um, with it being like my first experience of a target novel. Yeah, I was interested as to how you how people would flesh out stories that are forty five minutes long. Yeah, and there was. It was it was a it was a probably a naive concern, but that that you know, what if it's it's just like you you pick a character and there's this whole backstory for no reason. But this yeah. this backstory yeah. makes so much sense. Well, and yeah. yes, I mean, it, it, it it just improves upon the right. that moment in the episode where you know with the, with the Dalek sucker on his face. Well, the the, the basic rule was because there were a few of them. I they all had in some ways to thematically link back to the Dalek and be about mm. the Dalek or else it wouldn't be worthwhile. So for example, you know, I, in Van Staten's story, it's, I mean, all of them go back to the same point in their childhood. They all begin at seven, I think, including the Dalek because he gets his own backstory. He begins at seven seconds or something. So it, it's mm. my trying to sort of make all that linked, but all of them, you know, all the it ties into a new perspective on what we were watching. It couldn't just be, for example, that, oh, I can tell a funny story about this guard and here we are, here's the funny story about the guard, but it has nothing to do with anything. It had mm. to be something about the idea of, I mean, um, of uh, cruelty and about about the way of, of isolation that the Dalek has. Um, I mean, and with Adam, um, I give him the story, which was something which happened to me, really, where as a small child, I decided to stop talking for a long time because of my stammer mm. and, and what effect that had. And the idea actually of Adam then seeing later on this dark that also isn't talking and having a sort of feeling that that's a sympathetic reaction. It's yeah. these sort of ironic twists. I mean, I think that that was my concern too, was that it would be very easy just to sort of pad it out and I have heard people say that I mean you know it's only been out a few days but people obviously some some are not responding as well as others and some will say what's all this stuff in it that's not to do with anything but I, mm. but I do think it is I, I think that all those stories do have a purpose in highlighting another area about what's happening in the main action and the torturers one is for me one of the most obvious and it was fun the idea of um just, I mean, it occurred to me anyway. I mean, how would you employ this guy? I mean, it, it seems yeah. to be a very odd thing. I mean, you know, presumably they've had the Dalek for a while, but has this chap just been working as a guard? And then eventually yeah. they say, you know what? Why don't we just get you to just keep on torturing this alien machine? Yeah, or is, has he seen some kind of advert on Indeed for yeah, yeah, um, I, I, like I a Dalek torturer? I thought he'd be brought in specially, and I just I wondered why and who he was. And it was quite fun to make it that his actual name he goes under is actually not his own name, but the name of some kid he tortured at school. I thought that was funny. Yeah. It made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, no, I I I was I was laughing, but it was a lot of it was 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 nervous laughter because it was so 
Yeah, it was it was just yeah. a, a strange thing to read, but I I loved it. Yeah, I loved it like, every second of it. Well. Yeah, it is it is nasty. Um and but yeah, all all of the backstory, you, you're right there with with what you say in terms of obviously it, it's something that I've heard other people say about target novels as well, is is you know, it's just the the same story, but you know, you you pick a random character and you pad out the backstory for, for no reason. But every yeah. single backstory here all leads to this this path which is this this relatively short amount of time that you have in the the van staten base you know we're, we're not actually it's, it's almost you know we're, we're not actually there for a long time really are we um no. it's from from when you know the doctor walks into the cage you know it, it it's it can't be you know more than a, an hour or so it's, it's not no, a long it's not, time yeah. What was odd about doing the novel in the first place was that you know I mean you look at the not that you have read them yet but when you read target novelizations of the old four parters or six parters I mean they they do feel novel length they feel like these are big stories the problem with Dalek was that it was always it's almost in real time mm. I mean from the moment that it all kicks off that's it I mean and then we just soldier on to the end and that's not that's not a novel. That's like a short story format. Yeah. I just didn't want to. And the, the, the way of doing it would possibly have been to slow down the action so that you describe everything. And I didn't want to do that either because I think that's boring. I didn't want to be spending four pages describing another room in which the dark was traveling through because that will, you know, be something that you could describe I, if anything I wanted to cut scenes so I did I didn't like I didn't see the point in certain scenes I thought well I'm going to lose that I mean there are certain things which I know of were kind of fan favourites but I just thought they're not not really about the book I mean I didn't want the Cyberman head in it I just came to that bit and just thought why am I introducing a Cyberman what's the point yeah I about a Cyberman it's, I mean, it's yeah, when, when I was reading, reading that bit it it was, it, 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 I was like, oh, he's taking a Cyberman head out. But then yeah. when I thought about it, I was like, there's not really a way to write that without distracting well, from I mean, the fact that we're building towards a Dalek and then you just dump a Cyberman yeah. in. It works. Yeah. It's kind of fun on screen because, you know, it wasn't my idea on screen. It was Judy Gardner's. And it's, it's a lovely idea and I really enjoy it. Um, mm. And... I mean, she said in a meeting, let's have some old monsters. And I thought, yeah. I mean, because I'm a Doctor Who fan, why wouldn't you? But the idea yeah. of coming to that point of the book where you're trying to nose around and they find the Dalek, and you're going to take out a few paragraphs to explain to a reader, Cybermen who came from the planet Mondas, blah, blah, blah. And you think, but they're never going to be mentioned again. Why would you stick a Cyberman into a novel? It's not about the Cyberman. And that's the, that's the thing about translating, I think, television stuff into prose it's about television the the actual grammar of television is that some things get emphasized and then de-emphasized so it's perfectly okay to do that because it's not you know you move on from it but mm. when you're writing blocks of text all the words have the same size as each other i know that's a silly way of putting it but it's true and to give some paragraphs to describing something which you're not even going to develop any further yeah. Um, so that was the awkwardness really is that you know when I came to it I thought well, I've got 45 minutes and there are things I just want to cut out so there are certain scenes I don't bother with 
I mean, my one of my favourite bits of writing the episode, because um, it was one joke I wrote him which lasted every draft, is when he's going through Adam's collection of um, alien junk and he finds, and he's looking for a gun and he finds a hairdryer. I thought that was yeah. quite fun. And every single time I wrote it in the, in the script, Russell would say, yeah, I'm not sure that's going to survive any much longer, but it always did. We, and it got filmed and I found and that's quite sweet. Coming to the book, I didn't want to go there because it just slowed down the action suddenly. I didn't want now to have a mm. scene where having him say to Adam, you've got alien tech. The next scene I wanted him to have was that he now had the gun. The idea yeah. that I have a scene now where he had to do look for what we knew he was going to find anyway seemed pointless just like a bit of a gag about a hairdryer which also wasn't tonally where i'd now got the doctor anyway what mm. i thought was interesting about it was that the doctor's journey became somewhat darker and i didn't want to break it with a throwaway gag it was fine yeah. so yeah so the yeah, because those moments people, those moments on screen are like, I mean, the, the, the action of him doing that on screen must take, what, two, three seconds at most? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it, it flies by and it doesn't affect the action at all. But when, you're, when you're reading it on the page, yeah. you, know, you I mean, might have to dedicate like half a paragraph to that. And it's, it's going to... Well, more than that, it'd be, it'd be an entire section. So, yeah. you know, you have to go to Adam's thing. And why? <laughs> Mm. You, don't, you don't need any of it. So if it became a question actually of going through the episode and whittling it down rather than elongating it, if I just novelised what I wanted to novelise from Dalek, it would have been hard. It wouldn't even have been twenty thousand. So I, it wasn't that the, the extra chapters are there to pad it out. It, it became for me what the novel was. Mm. It was an attempt to try and say, you know, I'm trying to write about an unsympathetic alien creature. Yeah. But from the point of view of writing in, in a more deep way, the human characters who are affected by it and show yeah. how much purer the Dalek is in, is, is, is in comparison. So when, when we eventually get his childhood, which has been effectively stolen from him, he's given a sort of moment of experiencing what a childhood would be like mm -hmm. so that it's taken away from him so that he's forever resentful of those who've had one which I quite like. Um, but that, at, the, at that point of the novel, hopefully you feel, you know, that that actually in some ways dignifies him in a way it hasn't the others. And it's, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it, it was good fun to do. It, it, was, it, was, it was weird to do. I mean, I was, I, mean, I know that people ask, I'm asking already in interviews because I get them, you know, would I do another one? And the honest answer is that part of me would love to, but I don't know how I could do someone else's 45 minute script mm. without having the same freedom and i would feel probably a bit too shy to do it i mean yeah. i mean I'd, I'd i'd wanted someone to have been as um as some uh, you know as um disloyal to the original script of dalek as i was in order to produce the book if yeah. someone said to me you know adapt blink I, I, I love blink but how could i be as savage with Blink, as I could be with, with my yeah, own script. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Well, so, someone actually said to me said to me today, because as I mentioned, I was talking about um, Chimes of Midnight on, on Twitter, and someone actually said, um, 
how incredible would it be to get a novelization of Chimes of Midnight? Yeah. Um, if obviously I know it's not so, I don't think it's, it's something that that they've ever done. No. Would, not- would that be something you'd consider? Maybe doing a novelization of a big Finnish story that you've done. I'm not sure I'd see the point. Hmm. But then I didn't see the point originally of doing Dalek. So um, yeah. I don't know. I, I think that it's different, really. I, I, Chimes is its own, because, you know, because it's an audio drama, because I really like writing radio drama anyway. Um, I think it's good for its own form. Yeah. I'm not sure what you'd get out of a prose version of Chimes of Midnight hmm. that wasn't much more effective on audio. Um, I don't know if it, to be. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to compare myself to Shakespeare, but you'd have to ask yourself, you know, what do you get out of novelizing Hamlet? I mean, Hamlet yeah, works. I, I get what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm not really not saying Charles Midnight is like Hamlet, but what I am saying is, is that I think it, I think it celebrates being an audio drama. Mm. I'm, I mean, you know, it's like when there was talk about adapting it for television, you know, and you think I'm not sure it will work on TV. Mm. Um, I don't think it's that sort of story. I think you'd have to change so much to make it work as a book that it would only disappoint the people who loved it to begin with. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I, I get, I get what you mean there. Um, obviously, we went off on a on a bit of a, a, a target tangent there, but um, which is just great because we would know we were gonna we were gonna cover it anyway. Um, but this is just um, one last question okay um that i just wanted to, to slightly sidetrack to um because it's one that a lot of people have asked actually um I, i've just picked one person out of the bag um but quite a few people have asked this um cal uh, at generic underscore tweeting a uh, good friend of the podcast has said it's been a while since you last wrote a doctor who audio or episode and obviously yeah. the, the novelization is 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 the first thing you've done in quite a while yeah, um, yeah. Doc, that's doctor who related would you ever be interested in returning say for example if if chibnall wanted you to to come back to write for the show for an yeah. episode uh, um i've i've said no a few times um mm. um i mean not you know, I mean, there was even one point when actually I was attached to the show again for a few months, but it didn't really work out. It's, um, and, and for no very, very bad reason, just because it's a funny thing. I, I, th- I think I spent about four years doing Doctor Who writing back to back. I did lots of big finishes at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I began to find that, you know, you begin to lock, to sort of, lock in I think to how to tell a Doctor Who story the way you want to tell it and then you you kind of lose that again I mean I now write uh, books which I'm very fond of and I, I think that they're their own thing as well and I'm not sure I know how to tell a Doctor Who story anymore um, mm-hmm. it's such a long time um, once in a while it gets brought up um, and mentioned I mean by people by, by Big Finish I don't know how I would do it. It's not that I'm against the idea full stop. Mm. I don't, I, I always believed for years that I hadn't quite said goodbye to Doctor Who, which is why doing the target was such fun. I thought, oh, yes, because I, I get to be in the sandbox again. Um, but I don't know that, I mean, Chris will never phone me up <laughs> either. 
So I mean, I mean, I don't deal very. I'm not very good at hypotheticals like that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I did work for Chris once. I mean, I, I was on his first show uh, back in 2002, and he's and he's great. He's a lovely guy. He's a really nice boss. I would certainly be prepared to work for Chris, but Chris has his own stable of writers now. And also, mm. I was I was awful on his original show. I wrote I wrote episodes really badly for Born and Red. So um, I. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's what we were saying earlier on as well, is that I think that what's great about Doctor Who is that it's this constantly evolving show. And I think that you catch your moment when you are the right sort of writer mm. for where the show is at the moment. I'm not sure that I'd be a very good Jodie Whittaker writer because it's not really the style I write to. Yeah. It's not Doc the style. It's but yeah, it, it goes back to what you said before, really, doesn't it? Where obviously the, the you you don't know the answer yourself because in yeah. four or five years' time, we might yeah. have a completely different kind of Doctor Who that matches up completely with your style. And absolutely, you, yeah, yeah, you I have I'm, an idea that works for it. So yeah, it is a tough question to answer. It's um, always about, to be honest, it's about the relationships that you form. I mean, I didn't know Russell before he commissioned me, so that was a real act of faith on his part. And I mm. did know Stephen very well. I didn't actually end up working with Stephen because, in a funny way, I didn't want to spoil the friendship. Yeah. I think it would have done um, because it's hard. You know, you, you, it's always a compromise. I mean, doing TV anyway is always a compromise for a start. Um, you get a fraction of what you always hoped for or, or intended. Um, that's just the way that it always works. Um, mm. But it, and the process is is enormous fun, but it can also be. It always feels a bit like you're sort of taking a deep breath and gritting your teeth and hoping that this isn't the one which which destroys you. Um, yeah. So I mean, selfishly, what happened with Dalek was that I think it's pretty good, and I feel I got away with it. And as I said before, I mean, there's that strange which you shouldn't really have as a writer, but you do get that sort of strange fixation about posterity as a Doctor Who fan. You know, the fact that I've written Dalek and Dalek is remembered, and the fact that I've written some big Finnish audios, and, they're, and I wrote them all at the same time, so I feel like they're of a piece, but they're quite well remembered too, mm -hmm. means that to come back and do it not as well, when I had no idea really why they went down well in the first place, would be so upsetting. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I understand that if I went back to Big Finish, for example, and I, I know it's true because people tell me it's lovely. I think there would be excitement from Big Finish um, listeners of old that I was doing another one. But then it would come out, and if it wasn't as good as Chimes of Midnight, which I do think is actually pretty good, I think people would say, oh, right. I, I remember when Chris Boucher did some of the BBC books um, mm. I don't know when it was sometime in the about maybe the late 90s early 2000s and of course you know he'd written Face of Evil and Robots of Death and then he wrote a few novels years and yeah. years later. and the reaction was the announcement was one of such excitement and then when they came out people said yeah they're all right <laughs> and I don't ever yeah. want people to look back at anything I've done and say yeah, it was all right. I prefer what you did 20 years ago. Hmm. So I don't know. I think if I had, I mean, 
that sounds cowardly. And it wouldn't be true for other things. You know, if I didn't, if I wasn't a massive Doctor Who fan, it wouldn't matter. I would just say, yeah, mm. I'll do it again. And who cares if they prefer the ones that I did 20 years ago? But I think it would be, yeah, um, I'm, I'm very proud of them. And it would be frustrating mm. to have done them less well. Um, yeah. It would be kind of fun to try. I'm, I'm always open to it. I mean, I've, I've, I've always said to Nick, the big finish, that there may come a day um, and it might be fun to do it. I've never sort of said it will never happen. But I, I don't know. It would be... I, uh, it, 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 was, it was the nervousness about even doing Dalek, to be honest. Mm. The only reason I did Dalek in the end was that when they wrote to me, I didn't want to be the person who said no and spoiled it. So yeah. that... Um, and I also didn't want anyone else to do it. So it would have been very difficult to have... I think that they would have had the rights at that point if they wanted to do Dalek and I, and I passed it to give it to somebody else to do. Hmm. I think that would have been really, really painful. Yeah. Well, yeah, different. I I understand that. Fit. Like as, as someone who's quite um, quite anxious myself, um, right. and quite I have a lot of of, of self esteem issues as well. Oh, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, it's just like the the idea that. Yeah, right. That's because that's pretty much what we treat all the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, it's like the, the I mean, the, the first, the, the first sort of pinch yourself moment that I had with this podcast was when was when Katie Manning came on. Um, yeah. Obviously, I know you you know Katie quite well. I um, do. Yeah. And um, obviously, I kn- I knew already. You know, I know Katie Manning's lovely. Everyone knows Katie yeah. Manning's lovely. Katie Manning is Katie Manning. She's she's one of them. Um, Absolutely. But yeah. it was one of those moments where it's like that, you know, she'd she'd said yes to coming on the podcast, but then I'm like, well, why why am I doing this? Why am I the one interviewing Katie Manning? Why do do I get this well, this chance to yeah, do it? And it's you you don't want you, you don't want that weight on of it, but you don't want honest, to say no to it at the same time. But if you're but actually to be honest, it, it's what you bring to it that makes it work. I mean. It's like any conversation. I mean, I've done podcasts about Doctor Who, as you may imagine. Um, and before podcasts existed, the, the the equivalent going back so many years now. But I've never spoken like this about Doctor Who before because it's with you. So because that's that's the relationship that we're forming as we're talking. So mm. what you bring to your own interviews, you'll have got a different Katie to another Katie. I mean, mm. and knowing Katie quite well, I mean... It's almost frustrating how well I know Katie really. I mean, she's effectively a sister-in-law because the house I live in um, was bought by my wife and Katie together back in the 70s. I mean, so she's often here. I mean, pandemic accepted. I mean, she's often popping over. I think, you know, speaking as an old Doctor Who fan, it's weird to be thinking, oh, Katie Manning's in the kitchen again. Oh, well, I can't go in and, I can't go in and make myself a soup because I, I, I I'm trying to work at them. So it's an odd thing, but I also know that Katie will have utterly enjoyed her time with you because mm. she loves relating to new people, and that's what you bring to it. Is you bring her that that new experience as you are with me. I mean, I'm, I I will do other podcasts, and they won't be like this one because of you. So you know, I, th- I think the hard part is when 
and you read with people who do this when, when they have to go and do lots of interview press junkets for actors doing a movie and you know that what mm. they're getting is the same 10 minutes that everybody else is getting yeah you know it's the latest hollywood film and they're going to do all these papers and one by one they just say the same things and come out and there's and, and that must be soul destroying to be that interviewer but that's mm. not what you're doing so it's you know and, and what you're doing is terrific i mean i'm, I'm really enjoying this good good yeah. i'm glad to hear it um yeah. But yeah, that was a that was a lovely little tangent. Um, I enjoyed that. <laughs> and um, but, yeah, um, it, in terms of the the questions, I'm I'm sorry if again if we didn't get around to it. Um, but like I said, there's there's been a lot to cover. Um, so um, I said hopefully maybe one day you'll come back on in the future and we yeah, can sure. we can talk about them some more. Um, but we. Uh, before we start to, to wind down um, towards the end of the podcast, um, there's one little thing that we need to do. Right. Which you, we, we've, we've been over to the shelf um, to, to oh. view the DVD collection, the metaphorical shelf. Yes. And now we're turning a corner and now we're in a metaphorical corridor. Yes. Um, because we're going to have a little look down the corridor of fame. Have you ever been limited by who you were before? One day... I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Our lives are different to anybody else's. That's the exciting thing. Dear Sarah Jane, do I have the right to some people's small, beautiful events? What life is all about? compared to us. Ten million years of absolute power. That's what it takes to make me really perfect. A great decision came from the prince. Like a huge boulder dropped in a lake. When it was a child, this dream that made you adopt. Corridor of Fame, of course, uh, anyone who's listened to the podcast knows by now, it's essentially a Hall of Fame for Doctor Who, and I changed the name. Um, so it's it's a pretty simple concept. Um, but you have someone to put in, so but please, in honors, who would you like to put in the Corridor it's of Fame? In, in honour of the fact that I've just done a target. And it's not Terence, actually. I mean, I've just mm. I've spoken about Terence quite a bit because I've just done a Blu-ray interview about him, and that was great. But actually, the 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 writer of the Target books when I was growing up that thrilled me the most because of the way that he could just change stories to give them a much more emotional bent uh, was Malcolm Holt, and so. Mm-hmm. My choice. Uh, I, I shall explain briefly why. I mean, I, I know you've not read these, so I don't want to spoil them. You've you've seen the Sea Devils. Yes, I have seen the Sea Devils. Yeah. Well, here's an example. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that Malcolm Holt does, and why he's such an interesting writer. So, in the Sea Devils, you've got Trenchard, you know, the, the guy who who runs the prison mm-hmm. and is is kind of being seduced by the master into you know, yeah. um, and then. 
it's great on screen. The, the uh, Sea Devils invade and Trenchard goes out as a soldier fighting and he gets killed in the process. And we just see, you know, we see him fighting. The next thing we see later on in the scene is that without even giving him the dignity of the final moment, we just see his dead body. But he went out as a soldier. Mm-hmm. In the book, it's completely different. I mean, in the book, you get this this sort of background to his childhood and how disappointing he is. There's this moment which is, and it's so sad and it's so funny and it's beautiful where when he realizes that the sea devil, that he's actually done wrong and he decides that he's going to, he's going to die. He's going to go trying to do the right thing. And he confronts the sea devil with his gun. And at the moment of, of his death, he realizes he's left the safety catch on, <laughs> just gets killed. And yeah. it's awful. And then later on, there's this amazing bit where the doctor finds his dead body and without telling anybody before anyone else comes, turns the safety catch off so that he is yeah. given the dignity of no one ever having to know that in his last moments he failed. And that's that's extraordinary. And it's great yeah. on TV because it does a different job. But in the book, it's the way in which Malcolm Hulk looks at his own scripts. And he just, it, for example, I mean, his, his version of Colony in Space, which is not, let's face it, one of the most exciting adventures mm-hmm. ever broadcast. I've just been looking at the Blu-ray of it because that's just come out. And you think, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit dull. But the book, The Doomsday Weapon, is fantastic. And it's yeah. And it has the doctor teaching the colonists how to do a funeral because one of the numbers died and, they're, and, they're, and they've forgotten how to do funerals. And it's, it's full of the ideas of Malcolm Hulk is a man who was going back to his own work and finding new ways of being inspired by it. And I find, and I found the idea of Malcolm Hulk having done the target books, my own personal inspiration for when I did mine. So yeah. for me, Hulk, all, all the way. He's, a, he's a, he was an extraordinary writer. That's a lo- that is a lovely pick. Um, I'm I'm really happy about that one. Um, Thank you. I mean, the, like looking because like like you said, you're coming at it from um, obviously a, a lot of the things you mentioned there are target related, and then you've yeah. also on top of all of that, you've got everything you did for the show as well. Which yeah, I mean, God, yeah. like I've, I've got a li- I've got a, a little list here, which is. You know his writing credits on the show, which is you know the Faceless Ones, the War Games, Doctor Who and the Silurians, yeah. Ambassadors of Death, Colony yep. in Space, the Sea Devils, Frontier in Space, Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yeah, so absolute classics in there. And yeah, and also one of his best things he did was the novelization of of, of the Green Death, mm. uh, which was isn't even his own. War Games is oh, I love the War Games. Oh, I love the War Games. Incredible. Yeah, and it's one of those stories again. Um, which again comes out of the idea of fan acceptance. When I was a young fan, we were all told War Games was boring, and we were mostly told it by Terence Dix, because mm. Terence, you know, and Terence remember that he'd written ten episodes back to back very quickly with Malcolm Hulk, and he assumed it was awful. Yeah, and it was, and it was shown at the 20th anniversary, the British film, uh, the, the the BFI on the yeah. South. Bank did a special weekend where they showed lots of episodes and I went and they showed war games, uh, all of it. And it was a sudden, it was jaw dropping because everyone had assumed it was dull. 
and it mm. isn't at all. It's it's a remarkable piece. And what was lovely was you know getting to know Terence a, a bit it was he's realizing too that what he'd assumed hadn't been a very good job he'd done years and years ago, which had been broadcast once, and he'd never had a reason to reassess. Mm. It's it's a really well plotted, exciting. I, mean, I I think it may be the best black and white story that was ever made. War Games. I, I, really I think I think it's amazing, and I think yeah. it it's a testament to it that you know I think Doctor Who fans are under no illusion that you know some of the sixty stories can be tough to watch. Um, sure. Like it, they can be uh, a little bit hard to get into especially yeah. when you when like me you you're used to to new who um oh, and you you know you're used to 45 minute stories yeah. and everything getting wrapped up um and, four, you know I mean, yeah it's, it's four hours and and hours you know, it's, it's 10 parts and it flies by that's yeah, that's what it, it to me it was it felt like it was it, it was one of the shortest stories in in that era and, and, and it's one of those funny things as well that again, at the time when I was a young fan, its claim to fame was purely that the Time Lords popped up at the end and sentenced mm. him to Earth. That was all that mattered about it. And it's the least interesting thing about the War Games. It is, it is the War Games, I mean, all that stuff is fine. Yeah. I mean, no problem with it. But that isn't why the War Games is significant. And it isn't its length. It's simply the fact that it is a really humane, which is what Malcolm Holtz was so good at doing, these really humane, empathetic stories about his own horrors of various things, like in this instance, war, where literally all the soldiers on Earth are just puppets for somebody else. I mean, it's it's a deeply political thing to write, and it's but it's so exciting, and it isn't repetitive the way that you'd assumed it had to be. It's really fun. And yeah. it's got my favourite doctor in it. You know, I, I love Patrick Trafford, but it's got Fraser, who's great in it, and Wendy's great in it. And it's just, and it, and the, the first World War episodes at the beginning are beautifully made as they well. Are I mean, lovely, so, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's Doctor Who doing the first World War, even though it isn't the first World War, almost in a sort of unbeatably brilliant way. It's why it's never gone back to the first World War. It doesn't need to. The war games did it so well. It's um, because you know, it has gone back to it, hasn't it? Because the twice upon a time did it. So so that's nonsense. It has gone back, but it, but it's not tackled it in you know as a sort of as as, as the centerpiece of the story. Yeah, it, and uh, yeah. As as well, I just I feel like we need to mention two iconic creatures that that he created in the Silurians and the Sea Devils because yeah. they're both. They're both ones that are consistently on on people's lists for you know the the, the best yeah. creations and um to to you know to invent two um yeah. that that are up there it's it's impressive and to then link them together in in such a beautiful way and well, yeah and, and, and the Sidorians I think I think in particular the way that he is yeah. aiming time again I mean. You look at the history of Doctor Who, and a lot of it seems at the beginning to be about people trying to come up with their own new Dalek. Mm. Um, you know, let's find another baddie, and you get the Cybermen, but you know, which is great. It's just a, just in time when Terry Nation takes them away from the BBC being able to use them for a while. Um, but the Silurians are the first, it feels to me, proper attempt to produce a 
nuanced sympathetic monster uh, yeah and yeah, and it isn't just a twist oh the twist was it's, it's a planet of the apes twist, isn't it oh it was their mm. planet all along that i mean it could have just been that but it isn't that he doesn't make them I mean, again, it would have been easy for him to, to, to have gone the other way with them and just said, okay, well, actually, these are the goodies. But he's yeah. not. They are, they are threatening creatures, some of which are bad, some of which are good. There's a real society to them. I mean, again, if you read the book, which is even better, The Cave Monsters, um, mm -hmm. you get a real sense of that. Um, but it's, yeah, he's, yeah. that's what it's about oh. him, actually. Yeah, I love those sympathetic monsters, though. Sorry, go on. Yeah. I mean, with the Draconians. I mean, everybody loves the Draconians. Yeah. They're, only, they're only in one story. I mean, that's what I find so extraordinary about the Draconians. I mean, they were John Pertwee's favourite monster. And yet they're only in Frontier in Space. Mm. Um, and yet you would have assumed from the fact that they are talked about, and they were for so many years, as such a sort of iconic character, that they'd have been in more than six episodes. And they weren't mm. even, you know, they were just the ones, who, again, who were fighting Earth in a big war, but they weren't, you know, but they had their own code of honour. And, I mean, that's what I love about Malcolm Hulk, actually, was that he made the series grow up as well. And mm. I love Ambassadors of Death, which I know, you know, he kind of took over and it was such a troubled production, but he was really good, Malcolm Hulk. Um, mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But yeah, I, I love those. What I was going to say is like, I love those sympathetic monsters where you can almost, like, uh, you, you could tell the same story from their point of view. And yes. it works the same way where the humans would be the villains. And you can you can make it, you could twist things to, to make it yeah. work. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean I'll, be, I'll be completely honest. I mean, once in a while, I mean, one of the things about New Who, and I obviously love New Who, is that you can overdo the sympathetic monster somewhat. I mean, mm. there's sometimes there's actually a moment of real joy I get watching an episode where it's just that this is actually, no, it's fine. It's actually evil. It's, you know, it hasn't got to be something which is going to be um, saved. You know, I mean, Stephen, and I love Stephen's work. Stephen was reluctant, I know, for a while to, he didn't like the idea of things just being evil because it seemed to that, depth which is true it mm -hmm. does but it you did begin to wonder after a while whether or not i mean i remember watching flatline um jb matheson's peter capaldi story and being so pleased at the end of it when the doctor had given them all given it a chance and just said you know what i just think that maybe maybe you're just a tosser <laughs> that, <laughs> that that isn't the line <laughs> but it ought to have been oh uh, yeah know, i wish it was true. it would have been you know, great it, it was, and, and, and we I kind of got used to the idea at that stage of monsters that were just trying to communicate or trying to fix something. It was all a misunderstanding. And the idea mm. actually of flatline seemed to be even about that. You know, it was a thing from another dimension that caused people to be sort of flattened against walls and things. It could easily have been that this was a well-meaning attempt at communication, but no, it's actually just a shit. <laughs> and I thought that was great. So it is possible to overdo it as well. I mean, I just think that what's what you get, for, I think, that distinction between classic Who and New Who can often be one that classic Who can sometimes just make things irredeemable, mm. and that's that's a joy at times. But it can be quite nice when when you get 
a certain degree of that being not maybe quite so straightforward. Yeah. 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 Well, and of course, just going, and, going and, back. Sorry, go about me, I mean, that's one of the things, again, which you I kind of built on trying to do Dalek, of course. You know, I, I, I was doing a Dalek, but wanted it to, to seem as if I wasn't trying to paper it over. I mean, that's what I found always slightly irritating when it came out. The fans would say, oh, I'd written the one about the weepy nice Dalek. And it's not a nice Dalek. It's a horrible mm. thing. It kills a lot of people and it's brutal. But it doesn't mean that it's not without a certain degree of nuance where you can feel sorry for the fact that it does that. That's what I yeah. wanted. I mean, I was always terrified doing the drafts when the BBC, you know, would come in and want to do their own polishes. Not, not Russell, but other people. Um, the sort of people that would say to you early on, this doesn't make any sense. You know, why have you written an episode where the, doc the Doctor just turns up where there's a Dalek? And you say, well, that's what Doctor Who does. And I said, well, we need to find a reason because that's just ridiculous. So the idea actually of people wanting to say, I wanted, I remember there being some conversation at some point about, you know, whether the end scene would be the Dalek actually saying to Rose that Rose was its friend. And I was really against the idea of that ever happened. Mm. The Dyke at the end, would, the Dyke would love to kill Rose and the Doctor if it could, but it can't anymore. But it wants to be back to being that. That's what yeah. matters. You know? anyway, yeah. So well, that's no, that's that's actually what I was I was going to touch on was um, like the uh, pardon the pun, but the the almost sympathy for the Dalek. Um, yeah. Uh, that 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 comes across. I, I think it comes across more in the novel than it does in the in the episode. Yeah, because um, I I watched the episode back after reading the novel, and I watched it in a slightly new light. With because it's 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 a tough one because when you're reading it, it's like you you don't feel you you sort of feel sympathy towards this individual Dalek. Yeah, because it's not its fault that it's a Dalek. It's almost like it's like trying to be angry at a virus. You know, it's just a thing yeah. that happened. Like one event triggered it, and then it spread. And that's what the Daleks are. They're like a virus where it, you know they just getting a limb cut off, regrow it, a new a new Dalek is there, and it's yeah. born, and that's all it knows. You know, you you can't despise that individual Dalek for it. You can despise the concept of a Dalek, but it's not that Dalek's fault. I don't know if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, but, yeah. And one of the reasons why there's that chapter where I sort of show it being born and you know, mm. and you go through its childhood and its sort of training, and you realize that yes, it, it is one of these race of creatures, but the but the Daleks are doing this to themselves. I mean, that's what's awful yeah. is that you can is that we're picking this Dalek to feel sympathetic towards, but it's also, it would do it to the others as well if it could, because that's what it does. The mm. idea that, you know, I mean, it's that, I think that's a sequence, isn't it, where they're just sort of cutting bits of it off and sticking it into yeah. it. It's horrible. And that's happened to all of them. And it's happened. And the things which are doing it to this poor creature were also victims at one point themselves. I mean, it's mm. like, so at the same time, I, I, I hope that we are appalled by the Daleks whilst also feeling a sympathy for actually what they are putting themselves through. Mm -hmm. um, and yet they're horrifying. I mean, that's yeah. what, yeah. So it, it was being allowed to have that extra space to, to explore that, really. You know, 
And I, I was allowed to do things that I couldn't, you know, do on screen. So that, you know, yeah. I really wanted there to be more damage to the Dalek. When I wrote the episode, I, I had, I wrote it that there were things sort of big, you know, huge dents in it, you know, and it was bleating stuff. And on screen, it, you know, the, the Dalek that we see in that scene where Chris breaks in is not fundamentally more broken to look at than the one that rebuilds itself, really. Yeah. And that's correct, because that's an iconic scene. And what we, it wouldn't have worked as an iconic scene if the Dalek that we went in to see was this sort of poor, pathetic, shattered Dalek. But on, in the book, I could do it. In the book, I could actually have it so that, you know, you can have your cake and eat it because in your mind's eye, you can remember what the Dalek actually is meant to look like and still be scared of it or, mm. or be, or, or be um, impressed by it anyway. And yet yeah. I could in the book make it so that I could, you know, make it more obviously a, a victim. I mean, it's based in part more in the book than it was when I wrote the TV of the way that you would see animals in cages being tortured in yeah. you know zoos and things i really wanted to sort of bring that out it doesn't mean that when you set set the wild bear free it won't try and rip your head off <laughs> but but it yeah. but it's still appalling it's being subjected to that treatment i mean that's the that, that's the thing so yeah well i well i mean we'll we'll we'll, we'll wrap things up here i mean i just want to say this book is absolutely bloody marvelous thank you and i uh, was so excited to, to read it i pre-ordered it a while ago um with the the aim of i i, I just sort of had it in my head i was like i i love the daleks it was my first ever dalek story i think yeah. and it, it was it was it's a story that's always been in my head since i was a kid of you know it, it was rose and and this were, were the things that you know, it, it took me from being like I'm watching a TV show to, I, yeah. you know, I'm a Doctor Who fan, oh, and yeah. um, so I had it in my mind. I was like, I, I actually already own a couple of Target novels, but I thought I'm going to save them, and I want this to be oh well, which the one first? Well, I I actually, funnily enough, by pure coincidence, from finding them in charity shops, I own yeah. the Daleks, and. Uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth. So I own three. Uh, ah, you know. well, they are both in very different ways. Very good. Uh, mm. I mean, the, the David Whitaker one is really interesting because, of course, it's yeah. it's not written to be the first in the big series. It's written to be the standalone novel, and it's very yeah. different to what was broadcast. And it's a really, really good book. Dalek Invasion mm. of Earth is one of Terence's at his best. It's really atmospheric. It's, I mean, but it's much more. What, do, what the targets became, which was trying to... I mean, I mean, that was the big difference, really, is that when the targets were brought out back in the day, the way, the way in some ways that some of them now feel a bit dated is because they are trying to fill the gap mm. for um, viewers who will never see those episodes again. And, the, and Terence, for example, would say that he very deliberately wanted to give people that missed experience it wasn't about yeah. him coming in and trying to give new information or try to subvert something which is what i did and, and what you'll get stephen doing in day of the doctor and you'll get russell doing in rose and you'll get i'm sure mark and joy doing it's about terence at that point trying to tell the, the tv story so when you read dark invasion of earth it won't be massively different 
to watching the TV episode, but it's done really, really well by Terence. Whereas yeah. David Whitton is completely different. I mean, it really is in so many ways, and it's a remarkable, well-written book as well. Yeah. So I well, still enjoy. Yes, I'm. I'm very excited to read them. Um, and yeah, what what an introduction to Target Thank models. You. Um, I, I'm actually deeply honoured, genuinely, that the first Target book you've read of the 160-odd or whatever that there are out there is, is, is the one I read. so thank you very much. Well, yeah, like, like I said, it's this the episode and the, the story and the Daleks themselves are just, you know, so iconic in so many people's minds. And, um, you know, Dalek will always have a very special place in my heart for introducing the Daleks to me so um kind of you thank you yeah and I well it's it's the same for so many other people as well and I'm I'm sure that everyone at home listening is nodding along with me saying this um but um yeah I obviously I just want to urge everyone if if you if you haven't bought the book yet go and buy the book um yeah it's it's great uh (laughs) you can get it but pretty much, I think if you just type in Dalek Target Novelization, um, I know it's on Amazon. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's 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 cracking value as well for, for the entertainment you'll get out of it. So definitely oh, well, go and purchase this book. And um, one thing that I always finish the podcast with is okay. one solitary question. Um, yes. which is a horrifying question for me to ask people um, right. and in particular to say in a sentence uh, what does Doctor Who mean to you? Um, mm. it, it, I, uh, it, I think it, it's strange it's it's like this this is sounding awful, well, I'm, I'm going to phrase it, but it's like the, this constant reassuring noise in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think there's now a day when, if I'm bored, um, or actually, you know, if worse, if I'm at the dentist, which I hate, the way I would get through a dental um, procedure would be that I would I would count, I, I would list in my head all the Doctor Who stories. So, you know, mm-hmm. in, in he'd go with his drill and I'd be thinking, oh, the child, the Daleks, the destruction, Marco Polo, he's now in a Sastex sense. Right? And, I, I, and I'd do that all the way up to yeah. the most recent broadcast episode. And if I could do that more than two or three times in a row, it was taking too long, but it wouldn't ever be that bad. If I'm in the sauna at my gym and I hate the sauna at my gym, I, I, I time how long I can spend in the sauna by reciting that list once and once mm-hmm. i get to now a revolution of the daleks i think crap i can come out of the sauna so i mean and that's a ridiculous example but but for me it has now become i mean having there were a few years in the 90s i barely thought of doctor who but now it's it's strange it, it's this wonderful constant and i can't really tell anymore where i stop and doctor who begins i mean it's just yeah. It's something which is, it, 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 it's frustrating at times. I don't always like it very much. I mean, it, it, but that's true of people in your family. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's the one television program which feels to me like a family member. Yeah. And I know now, and it's, it's rather like, 
it's a lovely thing actually i i'm fairly sure that it, that one day i shall die and it will still be going and that makes me happier than yeah. that suggests i should feel but it's true i think there was a time when i would have been horrified at the idea that there would be doctor who stories broadcast that i would never watch and now there's nothing that makes me happier than to think this is like a family member that is going to survive me and mm -hmm. it will always be there i mean i think that's so extraordinary so i don't know quite that's not a very simple answer but i think for me it, it's it's something which gives me a constant sense of reassuring joy yeah that was an an absolutely beautiful answer Thank um you. that's uh that's gen genuinely that's yeah. genuinely got me uh, a, a little emotional because I, I feel ex I feel exactly the same. Yeah. Um, you know, I. I mean, and it, it's also, and, and I'll add. I mean, it's given me so many friendships. I mean, mm. I, you know, I think all the long-term friendships I've had in the last twenty-five years or so have all come about because of my Doctor Who family connection. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's a wonderful. I mean, I. I this is a silly little uh, show-off anecdote. It's a name drop, but I'll tell it because why not? Um, yeah. The night that Dalek went out, uh, and I had friends over. I had Stephen over, and I had Nick over. And I, I had people who worked on the show over watching it in my house. That's what we used to do. We go went to each other's houses for our broadcasts. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, the phone went, and it was Annika Wills. Yeah. And Annika, wow. I didn't know Annika. I mean, I think I've I think I've seen her, but we've never really spoken, you know. Um, and she phoned up to say she'd watched Dalek, and she got my number from some other people, and she wanted to welcome me to the family. Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? I mean, it really that's is absolutely lovely. And, and the the odd thing about and I thought at the time just what a wonderful thing, but the odd the odd thing is that there is a truth to it. I mean, you you feel that when you meet somebody, and they also worked on the show. Um, particularly if they're the writers, actually. I mean, I, you know, I was at a convention and I met Stephen Wyatt, who wrote Paradise Towers and British Show in the Galaxy. And Stephen and mm -hmm. I will, will resume going and having our, our lunches together again soon because we hit it off because we'd both written Doctor Who. We wrote it um, 20 years apart, but we both did Doctor Who. And it was yeah. a connecting thing. And it, it, it's a lovely thing. I mean, I mean, I was Nick Briggs's best man at his wedding because yeah. we became friends we became friends via Doctor Who you know I mean I mean that's what it does it's 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 a very odd silly show but it also produces real relationships and mm -hmm. real friendships and, and, and great connections so yeah that, yeah that was I couldn't that's put it better myself yeah 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 um but I, yeah, just, but I mean, before we finish, I okay. I just want to say it's been an absolute honour to, to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Josh. Um, and I'm sure everyone is going to love listening to this because it, it's been a, it's been a, a great episode. It's great um, fun to do. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, where, where, if just if anyone wants to, um, obviously I know we've plugged, we've plugged the book a bit, um, which is, is purely me just because I love this book, but um. Where can people find you if if they want to um, hear more I'm from you? I'm on Twitter. I mean, that's probably the best way. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm on Facebook, but I'm trying not to add many more people because it's huge. And um, also, I don't... 
I don't really talk about Doctor Who much, but if you ask me a question, mm-hmm. I'll, you, I mean, I, I mean, I will answer those. I mean, I, I don't, I don't post very interestingly. <laughs> so Twitter's probably the best place for that because at least I can answer people. Whereas on Facebook, I just do updates about my general irritation about the state of Britain. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, well, you did. Don't today. we all? And 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 I and I agree. And you know, and that isn't necessarily the most exciting thing if you want to hear about Daleks is hearing what I think about Brexit. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, then I think that the. That the two are very very connected in some way anyway mm, yes, that's fine definitely um well yeah that that's great and uh, obviously you can you can find us on twitter as well at who knew podcast uh, on instagram at who knew dw pod um you can email us who knew dw pod at gmail.com and uh, you can find me on twitter as well josh ryan Carr, and we're wherever you get your podcasts and now on youtube as well so um yeah there's no escaping who knew it's everywhere open your cupboards and i'm there jumping out with a with a new guest um but yes that was it so thank you once again for for coming on that's all right josh that's fine thank you Thanks for listening to Who Knew, a Doctor Who podcast. You can check us out wherever you get your podcasts and now on YouTube. Please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you can as it really helps us out. And a massive thanks to the Sononauts for lending their cover of the Doctor Who theme to be the theme for the podcast. <laughs>